Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Julia S. Charles, who's an assistant professor in the Department of English at Auburn University. Julia received her PhD and MA from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Her teaching and research interests center on racial crossing and passing literature, 19th and 20th century black women's writers, and African American literary movements her book, which has just been released by the University of North Carolina Press, is titled That Middle World, Race, Performance and the Politics of Passing. In this chronologically and thematically ambitious text, Julia highlights how mixed race subjects invented cultural spaces for themselves, a place she describes as that middle world. And in doing this, she offers a nuanced and wide-ranging discussion of African-American passing literature, eloquently mapping out how mixed-race performers articulated their sense of selfhood and communal belonging. Hi, Julia. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with the basics. So what was the genesis of this book? When did you first realize that this project could become a book-length piece of research? Well, I think like most people, it started as a dissertation project, but my committee's reaction to some of my claims in the project made me kind of excited. And so, because I don't know that I knew that I would go on into academia at that point, but I remember some of my committee members saying things like, uh, you should get this out there. This is special or things that push me forward and thinking about it as one cohesive project. So I would say probably around my dissertation days back in like 2014 or 2015. And how would you say the project has evolved since doing it as a dissertation and uh, how was it developed in new or unexpected ways than you might have thought when, when you started out on this journey? It has, I think, gone so far from the dissertation project, right? Like you're a different person by the time you get to the book project and you're just a different writer. More specifically, I think there's just so many chapters included that weren't even thought of during the dissertation. So like, for example, the prologue wasn't there where I talk about my grandmother and um, the freedom struggle in my hometown in Greensboro. And then there are these other pieces, right? Like the chapter on James Weldon Johnson, which is far and away one of my favorite that wasn't a part of the dissertation project. Neither was the chapter on Rachel Dolezal. And, And there are like a couple more that weren't there. And so it has evolved in ways like, it sort of showed itself in the everyday living, as I say, but it's, I think, a different and better project now, right? Because you're getting feedback from people who are scholars in the field and you're realizing that there's something special here. Yeah, it was really nice reading about your uh, grandmother in the prologue and it's almost a cliche, but it, it takes a village. Do you want to maybe say a little bit more about some of the the people in your life and some of those familial connections that were particularly important to the writing of this book? Absolutely. That, that's pretty much a pleasure. You know, in fact, I have gotten like no fewer than like 10 phone calls just about the acknowledgments in the book. Um, just kind of saying, wow, these are beautiful acknowledgments. That matters a great deal to me because those people matter so much just to the development of the project. I talk a little bit about 
Drs. Linda Brown and Dr. Esther Terry, who Dr. Terry is um, one of the founders of the department. I graduated from at UMass, the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies. Uh, Dr. Smithers over um, at UMass and um, Britt Russert and all of those folks, they, they just were so valuable to my growth as a scholar and a thinker and a writer. Um, but my grandmother and my mom, you know, they're pretty special. And my grandmother is like one of those rare gems, I think. You know, she's eager to sort of sit down and talk with you about the history, uh, not just in our hometown, but just how Black folks lived um, when she was younger. And that is always special for me. That's I'm, I'm kind of a history nerd. And so I sometimes would ask my grandmother just a random question and she could just go, just go on and on about whatever either injustices they faced or whatever fun she had as a kid. And I, I tried to strike a balance of those things in the prologue, um, a balance of this is the way of things. This is how life was in the Jim Crow South. But then also for my grandmother, it was sort of a project in having fun as a teenager or as a young adult. So I tried to strike a balance between this is how people lived, but also this is how people lived and, and continue to have fun and continue to, to do things. And so um, my grandmother's just amazing. And I do hope she get, gets to hear this because she really is just that important. So obviously family is a really central part of the book project for you. And then also there there seems to be some particular scholars who, who you look to, you know, over the past decade or so, we've seen some really rich literature come out in, in relation to ideas of, of passing. So uh, Kathleen Pfeiffer, Alison Hobbs, Gail Wold, people like that. Were there maybe one or two scholars um, that were particularly useful or, or instructive as, as you started to develop this project? Yeah, I mean, I think you named them, Gail Wald and um, Kathleen Pfeiffer, Alison Hobbs. You know, their work is just so um, rich about passing literature. But I, I would say in the last probably few years, none has gotten me there more in, in my thinking than Alicia Gaines. And she has a book called Black for a Day, and, where she talks about this concept of empathetic racial impersonation and it is just so, to my mind, beautifully done, right? And I am so appreciative of her for taking that kind of lead and having a conversation that I think this is where I sort of got the idea about being able to have a sort of narrative piece. It was because of her work that I became so comfortable in a conversation about my grandmother and how I came to this work. But her conversation about empathetic racial impersonation, I just thought was just so well done. And I wanted to engage in that conversation in my book. So you're following on from this rich tradition of scholarship, but you also make it very clear that, that you want to beat your own path. In your foreword, you, you state your belief that there was a thread here of the national fabric that had yet to be revealed in the way I believed it should be. So what exactly was that thread and, and how do you pull on that thread in a, way, in a way that's perhaps different to some of the previous scholarship that we've seen? I'm thinking about folks like uh, Naomi Zak and uh, Michelle Elam, who have done just rich work around mixed race folk and, and passing literature. People like Emily Clark, right? They've done a great job. But the where I saw an intervention, right, was this idea that mixed race characters in American fiction um, 
are moving toward political aims, right? Or that they're occupying spaces that are separate from, even if connected to the black and white world, right? That they aren't always on the cusp of one or the other, or they're not always firmly situated in one or the other, but that they have this ability um, because of their perceived or their lack of visible blackness, right? That they have this ability to navigate back and forth between these fixed spaces of black and white, right? And occupying a space that's all their own. And I think I come to this idea from um, William Dean Howells, where he is critiquing Charles Chestnut's work. And he says that Chestnut introduces us to, quote unquote, that middle world better than any other writer. And he goes on to describe what he feels like that middle world is, right? But he doesn't theorize it. And I just thought that there was something pretty valuable about what he's suggesting about Charles Chestnut, about his work. And then we know that there are a host of other writers who have done a similar thing, some arguably better than Chestnut, certainly some before Chestnut, many after Chestnut. And so I wanted to kind of get into that and see if those themes continue throughout much of passing literature, right? Whether there are these characters who are dismissing all of Black life, who are laying down all of Black life and sort of becoming resolutely white, or whether they're these characters who toggle between these spaces throughout much of the novels, much of the fiction. Like, are they toggling? Are they sometimes Black, sometimes white, sometimes not? And so that's what I, I kind of wrapped my mind around is that that these characters are operating very differently than the so-called tragic mulatto fiction, right? That they're not wrapped up in tragedy. Um, they're not succumbing to some evil, dark strain, right? And that's how that middle world sort of, how that's a little bit different, I think, than what some other writers are doing. One of the things I appreciate most about your book is is your intentionality with the types of language and the types of concepts that you use. And one of the things I, I found most useful was was the glossary that you actually have at the back where you lay out what you des- uh, describe as this critical vocabulary for analysing black racial passing narratives. So let's talk about some of the words or some of the phrases that appear in that glossary um, and your reasons for um, defining terms in the ways that you do. So to start off with, you have this distinction uh, between passing and between crossing. So can you just briefly outline uh, how you define or, or distinguish those two terms? Of course. So passing, I define in, in a way that I think most people do. This idea that you're passing from one identity into another identity, and it's sort of um, a permanent kind of resoluteness to the enterprise that that person is committed to, right? Or a character for that matter is committed to. So passing in sort of the traditional sense is like, if we take the more standard example that we have in the literature, a black person passing for white or becoming white and being accepted as white. And historically that term has been kind of linked to deception, um, that they're trying to deceive people around them. And so, so there is kind of a negative connotation to the idea of passing. And then I have this, distinction between passing and crossing, where crossing is a temporary state, right? Where you cross into one identity and then you come back to your sort of in-group or your home identity. I think we can see that throughout much of passing literature, but not just racial passing literature, right? We can see it in um, gender crossing. Um, We can see it in um, film. We see it in a lot of different types of ways. And the difference is that crossing is strategic and temporary, whereas passing is, while also strategic, is, is more permanent. 
So you you start the text with a critical reading of Charles Chestnut. Um, why did you choose to focus on Chestnut? I mean, you've already mentioned that the title for the book comes from a Howell quote about Chestnut's work. But were there other factors involved there for, for starting uh, with Chestnut? Yeah, well, there are a couple of factors, right? One is when I was in um, graduate school, I think maybe I was getting my master's at North Carolina A&T State University. And I thought I was going to go in there and write a master's thesis all about Chestnut. I was just fascinated with Chestnut's work, sort of vastness of his work. But then as I got more into it, I realized that it wasn't Chestnut, but but his depictions of mixed race characters that I was so fascinated with. And so that became a project in and of its own. But what I noticed about Chestnut, that's a little bit different from some of the writers who come before him, some folks like William Wells Brown, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, people like this. Um, what I noticed that was a little bit different was that Chestnut becomes a bit of a race theorist. In his nonfiction, he becomes a race theorist. So in like 1899, when he asks, what is a white man? And he has this entire essay full of like sardonicism and and legalese. And it's just talking about like, well, what exactly is a white man? And he's basically asking what proportion of so-called white blood constitutes or makes someone white or makes someone not white for that matter. And that is playing, I think, with a bit of race theory, even though he's doing this in sort of a laughable way. And so I found that interesting. And so he, and he also has just this large breadth of material on the future American and what he theorizes the future American will look like. And essentially what he says is race will disappear over time if we allow it to. And that uh, most people in America will look something like a mixed race character, right? And so that is a bit of race theory to me. And so I felt like that was an interesting kind of point to grapple with, especially since William Dean Howells already tells us that he talks about that middle world better than any other writer. So I thought, wow, he's doing some race theory here. And I think a similar thing happens later on with Gene Toomer. And so I just wanted to center Chestnut and his thinking and his literature and see how does his literature, um, his fiction differ from his nonfiction? What is it that he's saying in his nonfiction that he doesn't quite get at or that he experiments with in his fiction? Something else that comes through in chapter one as well is this idea of a, a theory of strategic silence. So can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that term? Sure. Uh, so I'm here I'm drawing on um, Kevin Kwashi's notion of quiet, right? And um, essentially what Kwashi argues is that um, that blackness is is seen as something that's only outwardly expressive. And I'm I'm sort of pushing that notion forward. But this theory of strategic silence, we can see how it plays out when we look at Langston Hughes and how he talks about fooling our white folks and how he he goes even so far as to say we black folks tend to give a nod to folks that we know are black um, legally who get away with fooling white people in, into thinking that they're white. And um, I'm particularly attuned to my grandmother here when I asked my grandmother, so if you saw someone you knew was legally black and you saw that person passing, would you would you speak to them? And she said, I'll never forget it. She said, no, I wouldn't have spoken to them. Maybe I would have smirked a little bit, but I wouldn't have acted familiar. That would have been dangerous, right? And what that teaches me is that my grandmother, she wouldn't have not spoken to them out of fear necessarily of contact with white people, but she would have not spoken to them knowing that she needed to preserve that crosser's body, 
that, that she needed to preserve their moments of freedom, their moments of movement. And so the thing I enjoy about that small conversation with my grandmother is that she said, perhaps I would have smirked a little. And that's an outward expressiveness that that is a little bit different from Kwashi's quiet, but it's an outward expressiveness that says, I see you do your thing, be excited, you know, uh, be free while you can. And I, I'm not going to snitch on you. And she even goes so far as to say, and we wouldn't have said anything. We being black people. Um, my grandmother says we wouldn't have said anything that that idea of recognizing that someone might be crossing into other racialized spaces other than their legally identified one. And so what is my job as the bystander? Do I say anything? Do I acknowledge them? Do I uh, smirk a little? And so that strategic silence is on the part of the crosser and the non-crosser, right? Because the, the crosser is already operating in a strategic silence either way, right? Like that, that they are um, silencing certain parts of themselves in order to be received um, by another group. But there's also a silence, a strategic silence that happens with the non-crosser or the observer, as it were, that if I recognize you from my in-group, I know not to say anything, right? I know to keep my mouth shut and let you live your life and to preserve your your body, um, your moments of freedom. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at with that strategic silence. You have this, this sense in, in, in some ways or, or in some circumstances of solidarity or, or of sameness, but then also of spatial, economic, social difference. And, and one of the ways you talk about that is through this idea of the Blue Vein Society. So what exactly was the, the Blue Vein Society? So we have a, a group or a society of, of mixed race individuals who some may or may not be able to pass for white, but what the description, at least that Charles Chestnut gives us, is that they must be fair-skinned enough to show blue veins. You know, kind of leaning on this idea of the paper bag test, uh, how brown are you, how white are you, that kind of thing. So the Blue Vein Society is this sort of elite group of mixed race people who may or may not pass for white, but they certainly don't identify as black and then they also don't identify as white, right? They might, they acknowledge they have African ancestry, but they might be deliberately disassociated from all things black. Um, Chestnut says something to the effect in, um, I think it's the wife of his youth. He says something to the effect of the one doesn't want us yet, but may take us in time. The other um, would take us, but it would be for us a backward step. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So basically what he's saying is that uh, white folks won't accept us yet because we're still not white enough. Um, but maybe if we give them a little time, they'll they'll do this. They'll accept us as white. Um, the black folk will take us now. But what does that do for us in this particular uh, political moment? Right. It doesn't benefit us to be seen as black. And so we have this entire society of folk who are mixed race and deliberately disassociated from darker skinned black folks. And it's interesting to me that Chestnut writes this in maybe 1900, but in 2020, Britt Bennett writes The Vanishing Half, right? Where there's a town called Mallard in The Vanishing Half. And this town is created by and made up exclusively of mixed race people uh, or mixed race characters, I should say, right? And and there is a distinct separateness, um, if you will, from all things darker skin black. And there there are even sort of implicit rules in the town about how one can operate 
around darker skinned black men or darker skinned black people. And of course, the town gets kind of turned on its head a little bit when um, when one of the characters in the town who is fair skinned and mixed race gives birth to a darker skinned black child. But I think Britt Bennett does for us in The Vanishing Half what Chestnut started in 1900. And that's, I think, saying something in this particular 2020 political moment that hinges quite a bit on race and physical difference. Yeah, so in, in one way, this, uh, this idea of the Blue Vein Society seems quite selective or exclusive and in some ways might be a, a racial performance in a, in a relatively private space but then in chapter three uh you're you're more invested in the success of racial performance or of passing or crossing in, in public space so who are some of the people who are most useful for for thinking about this in chapter three it's a little bit um i think a little bit interesting because there's a lot of history here um, and that we're not dealing with characters as much as we're dealing with human beings. And so we have William and Ellen Craft. I mean, they're characters in chapter three, too, if we look at William Wells Brown's um, The Escape. But I'm particularly interested in William and Ellen Craft and how Ellen Craft sort of transforms her herself, her identity, um, transforms herself from an able-bodied mixed race or identifying as Black woman into all of its opposites, right? To a, a disabled, a deliberately disabled white man and wealthy, right? And so that particular performance I find interesting because as she's crossing into these other spaces, there are people around her whom she needs in order to pass her way to freedom or cross her way to freedom as it were, right? And so um, as she needs her husband to pretend to be pretend to be a slave, right? She needs her husband for that performance. And her husband in the book says something to the effect of like, this was my idea. We decided on this, but this was my idea. I'm not so sure, I believe, whether or not it, it was his idea, but I do appreciate the various improvisations that happen throughout their freedom narrative, right? Um, there is a moment where someone is interested in, in um, Ellen Craft, but only as she's performing as a man at this moment, right? She's performing as a disabled, wealthy white man. And in order to get out of this awkwardness of someone being attracted to her um, or to him, as it were, he faints, right? The character that he's playing faints in order to get out of this, this awkward moment. And I think that moment of improv tells us that not only are these um, people invested or have have thought through their performances and rehearsed their identities in private, but there's something about taking the stage during the day that lends itself to improv, and that's really important, right? Like, like there are some, certain things that happen that you have to be able to adapt to on the fly, and that um, adaptation or that improvisation, oftentimes, if done well, will preserve your body. And and that's the whole goal to get to freedom, right? And so I'm really invested in uh, William and Ellen Craft in chapter three. But later on, I have a section in chapter three called The Curtain Call, which I think really gets at the fact that this is a performance, right? And so if we look at folks on the anti-slavery um, anti lecture circuit, we'll see that this has always been a performance, right? That this is always going to be a temporary place. And we see that because folks like William Wells Brown and um, Sojourner Truth, these aren't visually white folks, but they are performing a particular identity. 
in order to get to the thing that they want, right? And, and once they're on that lecture circuit, on that stage, they might perform pieces of their escape for the audience, or they might appear in partial costume for the audience, just so they can know that this was this has happened, this was believable, but the show is over now, the performance is over now, and this is who I am in the present. Yeah, so you see that kind of merging between literal forms of passing and then literary forms of passing and uh, one of the things I, I thought was most interesting is is you talk about James Weldon Johnson and the way that his his book the autobiography of an ex-colored man passes as as a autobiography uh, can you speak to that a little bit Right. And so James Weldon Johnson talks a bit about in autobiography of an ex-colored man when it's first published it is published without a name or published anonymously. And it is taken as an autobiography. And in his um, biography, James Weldon Johnson says that he has gone back and forth about whether or not that was a good idea to have this text present itself as a human document, as someone who has lived. And the reason it was accepted that way is no doubt, certainly because people have known others who have crossed into other spaces, who have crossed into other identities, right? And so it's plausible enough that um, it could be accepted as a human document, which is to say real, right? But then um, when it's published again, I think in 1912 or 1915 or, or somewhere around there, it's published with well, um, James Weldon Johnson's name. And at this point, James Weldon Johnson is um, working for the NAACP. He is known at this point, right? Um People know who he is. So when it's published with his name and it's understood to be fiction, I'm sure there is some relief on the part of white folks who are like, oh, okay, well, it's fiction, you know? Um, And then there are people, according to Johnson, who um, he's heard or he had heard trying to figure out if they knew this person when when the book was presented as an autobiography. But when it's presented as fiction, then it allows a lot of room for thought experiments or whether or not this is plausible or whether or not something like this could ever occur. And I think he just does a beautiful job with the unnamed protagonist, even the way he maintains the ambiguity throughout the novel. Um, And so like things like the club is only called the club or the millionaire is only called the millionaire. That contributes to the overall ambiguity of this document, whether or not it was real, as it were. And I think he just did a beautiful job there with um, the autobiography of Next Colored Man. And so when I started to write about it, I started figuring that like th- this is multi-layered passing. There's passing at some point, there's crossing at some point. And, and certainly I'm not the only one to think this, right? That the other folk know that this document passed as an autobiography, but I think it is so beautifully done that it teaches us something about the enterprise of passing itself. So the way that Johnson talks about passing is situates itself within a black literary tradition. Um, but then you also talk about um, its relationship to a musical tradition. So what, in, in your opinion, or, or, or the way that you express it in the book, is the relationship between passing or, or crossing and um, black music? So what Johnson gives us in the novel and, and also in the uh, Book of American Negro Poetry is this sort of... Um, musical history or uh, that he kind of lets us know that um, certain genres of music are inextricable from Black culture. And he was known to have thought this, right? That that he and uh, folk like Du Bois and even Alain Locke to a degree, right? Like they had this notion that, that Black folk would have a gift to give to the world. And for Johnson um, or for Du Bois, at least, 
that gift hadn't yet been achieved. But for Johnson, that gift what came in the form of jazz, right? And and that he sort of posits that Black folk gave the world these musical, um, these beautiful musical, I would argue, disruptions and created something beautiful out of it. And for Johnson, that became jazz and ragtime and, and things of that nature, right? And so what he does is he links ragtime to the body, right? And he makes it readable as something Black, as something distinctively Black. And so ragtime connotes race in the novel, throughout the novel, right? But like ragtime becomes something deliberate and disruptive and Black, whereas classic music becomes something um, that is socially accepted and and tethered to whiteness, right? And his doing that lets us, lets his narrator have a sonic kind of travel throughout the, the novel. And I think it's just so smartly done because as the narrator starts to learn other type, other genres, having been a, a child prodigy in the novel, as he learns other genres of music, he um, has to study those genres and he has to, it's no longer like this sort of, I'm, I'm special here and I learned this and, and I'm a prodigy, I'm important. But as he gets into his adulthood, he has to practice and he has to try and figure out what this music is saying. And I talk a little bit about Amiri Baraka's um, notes on on jazz and what the music was doing for Black culture. And, and James Weldon Johnson puts that at play in the novel. So he makes us um, sort of grow with the narrator as the narrator is learning this music and learning what it connotes and all of those things. And so I just think it becomes a way for the narrator to um, pass into other spaces. And in, in, in order for him to occupy other spaces, he's got to learn other genres of music. Throughout the text, you're, you're kind of grappling with these complex and, and intersecting ideas. So you're talking about the spatiality of race, uh, whether that's through access or inaccess to specific spaces, such as the Blue Vein Society, you're talking about the performativity of race, um, the respectability politics of racial performance. Um, and these different threads uh, converge in, in Chapter 5 in, in your discussion of Nella Larson's passing and, and Jesse Fawcett's plump bun. So... What links these texts and, and what uh, kind of distinguishes these texts in terms of the way that you, you think about this middle world? I'm certainly not the first to talk about Jesse Fawcett and Nella Larson, their fiction in conversation with each other. But I think what links them is um, how the characters throughout both of the throughout both of the novels, Passing and Plum Bun, how each of the character, each of the main characters occupies multiple racial spaces throughout the novels. And we're talking about uh, mixed race female characters. And so one of the, the other reason I wanted to kind of put them in conversation with each other is that we, we tend to talk a lot about Nella Larson and rightly so um, beautiful and brilliant um, in her writing and, and things like that. And, and relatively obscure until we get Hutchinson's biography um, but Jessie Fawcett remains pretty unheralded, whether it's her fiction or her, her poetry, her short stories, right? Like that, that she remains obscure, which is the reason I'm currently writing a biography of Jessie Fawcett, right? But she has done something, I think, pretty brilliant here when she is, the characters in the novel are, seem so plausible because she's writing about a moment she understands and knows well, right? And so I put those two in conversation because because of the intricacies of the types of passing and crossing that their mixed race characters do, right? And so Nella Larson's character in 
in passing, um, we, we, most readers are so frustrated with Claire. In fact, I just finished teaching this book this past week um, at Auburn. And I'm telling you, these the, the students feel a way about, about Claire, right? They are frustrated with her, um, but then they still want her to win in a way. The same thing happens in Plum Bun, where, and they're, both books are published around the same time, at least within a year of each other. And what we learn is that these characters are starting to question whether or not racial designations are even fair at all anyway, right? They're making us question not the morality of the enterprise of passing, right? But they're making us question an America that would make passing necessary. And so we start to interrogate the world around them and not just the characters themselves, which I think, or at least I try to get at in chapter in chapter five, that it's more than just about the narrow everydayness of what the characters are experiencing. But even if we took it to that moment, um, if we examine the various scenes throughout the novel, what we are actually going to get are um, these uh, sort of, I think, ontological or and or existential questions about race itself. And that's kind of where I wanted to push us to, because there are all these moments throughout both of the novels that characters are either occupying um, what was a white space, but now that they've entered into it, being a part of that middle world becomes necessarily a mixed race space. And sometimes it can be a black space at the same time. Right. So um, how do these worlds clash with each other? And that's what I kind of wanted to get at in chapter five. Yeah, I think um, you talk in chapter five, and, and this is something that resonates throughout about the importance to you of uh, exploring and extending the parameters of our identity rather than policing them. Um, and that, uh, at least on, on my reading of the text, leads you to a more sympathetic view of Rachel Dolezal than I was perhaps expecting as, as I entered the text. So just briefly, can you outline how your reading of the Rachel Dolezal case maybe deviates slightly from um, a, a more just blanket criticism of, of, uh, of her decision? So to be clear, I, I really, I believe Rachel Dolezal is a, a white woman. And I say so in the text and I never deviate from that point. But I'm not so much concerned with her individual racial performance as much as I am with whether or not that performance causes harm to Black folk or the, the space she's trying to occupy and and what her performance has to teach us, right? Where, where are the didactic moments in her performance that we can glean something from? That is not, however, the, sa- the same as suggesting that that we should pardon Dolezal, right? Because I do think that there is some inherent harm in her racial performances, right? And, and, and I talk about that in looking at the Netflix documentary, The Rachel Divide, um, that the part that was particularly gut-wrenching for me is where she has she has a sister who's a Black woman, and her sister learns that in part because of Dolezal's performance, um, that she will never get to see justice or, or the thought of justice for this, this um, sexual violence that she has experienced. Her sister has accused her brother of um, sexual assault, and her sister learns that she will 
that they will drop the case because Dolezal had been a witness and they can no longer believe Dolezal because she's done all of this stuff. She's done all of this racial performance and lying about things. And, and that has caused harm to a black woman. And so that is not lost on me, but the, the bulk of the chapter is actually about what can we glean from this kind of performativity, right? What does it tell us about racial, uh, racial identity in general, right? The sort of tenuousness of the relationship between ourselves and our body, whereas it is the body, the relationship from the, of the body to oneself is usually a very strong relation. It's, it, it's the one true unavoidable relationship, like what we experience, our bodies experience and that kind of thing. But Rachel Dolezal teaches us something. One, she disrupts this um, one way phenomenon of, of how we understand passing from black to white. And I'm leaning a little bit um, or actually pretty heavily on um, Alicia Gaines here in Black for a Day. But Rachel Dolezal does something different, right? She occupies these spaces and her link to these spaces is uh, uh, the oppression of Black folk, right? And so she's occupying spaces like at the NAACP and she has at least eight cases, eight open cases of what she considers hate crimes that she says she's experienced. But she's saying these things because they for her somehow make her blacker. And what does that mean for us that she has linked a particular kind of bodily harm, threat of violence to her to her um, performed black identity, right? That, that teaches us something about how she views black people as being from this oppressed class that are constantly harmed and that kind of thing. And she's not the only one to do this, right? Um, we recognize that, that Jessica Krug recently did a similar thing. And then there was this kind of outburst of folk that continued to come out, mostly white women, but continued to come out and say, yes, I did this. I caused harm. I pretended to be black. And what I was interested in gathering in the chapter was is there anything we can then learn from Dolezal's performance and not to, and to be able to learn those things without kind of lauding her for her performance, right? Because I think that there is some actual harm in her performances, but I want to know what can we learn from it um, without also kind of applauding her at the same time. And then you, you link that critique of, of Dolezal to an article by uh, Rebecca Tuval, which was in defense of transracialism. Um, so how do you understand uh, that idea of transracialism? And then how does it factor into your critique of, of Dolezal? Well, so I think this part is important too. Um, Tuval is a, is a presumably white woman um, who identifies as a, um, a feminist scholar, uh, a feminist philosopher, I believe, um, over at Rose College. And I think her article, um, if I'm going to be fair about my critique here, I'm, I'm going to say that her article was short-sighted and dangerous, right? The the link of um, trans identity to racial identity is, um, one, problematic, and two, does harm to trans folk, right? Um, that there's actual science that talks about um, the notion of sort of transness, right? Trans identity and the relationship that Tuval makes between trans identity and racial identity almost dismisses trans identity in particular ways. For, in, for instance, um, Tuval says something to the point of, in her original article, she did names uh, Caitlyn Jenner, which usually is a surefire sign of a lack of engagement with trans issues. But in her dead naming Caitlyn Jenner, we're, none of us are above correction, right? And so she goes back and corrects that and assumes it to be a healthy practice 
considering that Caitlyn Jenner has done that herself in her in her book. But the part that I find a little bit troubling about Tuval's argument is that one, we have a white woman in Tuval. We have a white woman who is coming to the defense of another white woman and asking us to either pardon her or consider her case the case for transracialism. And so the fact that we have two um, cisgender white women talking about except Rachel Dolezal as a black woman, because if you don't, then that that calls into question trans identity is absolutely ludicrous, right? Um, because whether or not we accept um, Dolezal, and I do not, right? Whether or not we accept Dolezal as a black woman, trans identity will still be a thing, right? It will still be a scientifically proven thing. So it's a slap in the face, I think, to a degree of, of trans people. But when um, um, the FS, um, FX hit show um, Atlanta does the co- sort of satire on Dolezal, it's a be- it's beautifully done in the sense that we have this darker skinned black character who is now calling himself a 35 year old white man. And the audience, of course, is taken aback by it because they're like, what in the world? There's no way that you're a white person. And they also engage in trans issues in that same episode of of Atlanta. And what this shows us is that people have a tendency to conflate the two, to conflate trans identity with racial crossing, suggesting that folk who are trans are only performing a particular identity. And I just don't think that that's the case, right? And I think that that does harm to um, trans identifying people. So you conclude uh, that middle world with this analysis of Dolezal, you know, particularly this idea or her concern of living in the grey world between black and white. Um, but you also say that she's not an inhabitant of that middle world, as you've imagined it, um, in the way that some of the other characters or some of the other writers are that you've talked about. And, and one of those is, is Jean Toomer, who we haven't been able to talk much about. To, to cycle back to, to Toomer, how do, do they factor into to this argument and, and where do they or, or what's their positionality within that middle world? I think if Tumor, if there was any sort of um, face of that middle world in in what in real life, right, it would be Gene Tumor. Gene Tumor talks about um, what it's like to live midway between the black and white worlds. Um, Gene Tumor is the grandson of the first black governor of any state in the union. Um, he's the first black governor of um, Louisiana in PBS Pinchback. And Tumor, um, once he publishes Cain, um, his work becomes tethered to his race, um, which is to say becomes tethered to blackness. Though Tumor didn't see himself as black. In fact, sometimes on the census, he identified as white. Sometimes he identified as black. And uh, there was this kind of I don't think it's necessarily a rejection of blackness as much as it is a rejection of race itself, which could have, for all I know, started from a rejection of blackness. But it certainly is a rejection of um, racial identity. And we know this because after um, Toomer publishes Cain and refuses to be published in the Book of American Negro Poetry or anything identifying him as one racial position, Toomer spends the rest of his life trying to find vocabulary that would define him the way he saw himself. Um, He ultimately fails at doing that, but he spends quite literally the remainder of his life trying to figure out what that racial identification was, if there was one at all. And so he's a little bit, quite a bit different from Dolezal in that, that he is not trying to exist further or deeper within the racial binary, 
he's actually trying to reject it all and and find vocabularies that that really suit him and whatever his impetus for doing so what he gives us is um, the opportunity to see that middle world is operating outside of the bounds of fiction, um, the way I've pretty much outlined them here. How do you imagine that world evolving into the future? And how can you see the the paths that you've charted throughout your book um, continuing or deviating? I anticipate that middle world being linked to other identities, for example, um, gender identities, or so folk who are, for example, who might identify as trans, but haven't gone through a confirmation process. I imagine that they um, will or are occupying a sort of middle space, um, a space of in-betweenness, where they recognize that they are not just this legally um, assigned gender, um, that they're not just this thing, but they have not yet been recognized as um, the other thing. And so they're occupying this sort of foggy sort of um, in-between space, right? But more to the point, more than than for trans folk, I think uh, for queer identifying folk who pass or cross a straight people who have um, what we might call, uh, colloquially speaking, what we might call a beard or someone to front and pretend to be their partner um, so that they can occupy worlds that are cisgendered, heterosexual uh, worlds, that they can occupy these cishet spaces, that that middle world will become the language for how they see themselves in their public life versus their private life, right? And so if if in their private life, they are identifying as queer, or let's say it's um, a male-identified subject who goes home to his male-identified partner and loves that life and hopes to never give up that life, but recognizes a world that doesn't always see that as um, good or safe or comfortable, they might go out in the world and be someone else in the world, perform an identity outside their own. And so I see that middle world kind of operating in those ways where folk in um, gender studies or in sexuality studies or in maleness um, studies might might see this as a useful kind of vocabulary for discussing the in-betweenness of any sort of identity politic. And just finally, uh, in terms of what's next for you research-wise, you, you mentioned you're, you're currently embarking on a biography project about Jesse Fawcett. Could you say a little bit more about that? Could you give a, a sneak peek to, to listeners about what that might look like? Absolutely. And um, so the biography right now is tentatively titled The Architect, um, a cultural biography of Jesse Redmond Fawcett. I, I can go ahead and admit that I have a, um, a literary crush on Jesse Fawcett, but she remains one of the most obscure of the New Negro Renaissance writers, but she publishes everyone we come to know, right? Like she publishes Langston Hughes and um, Claude McKay and Georgia Douglas Johnson and Nella Larson. And she's a literary editor over at the Crisis Magazine, one of the known magazines. And you could find one in nearly any Black home in America uh, during the 1920s. And she also is um, the managing editor at the Brownies Book, which is one of the first um, magazines for children, um, for Black children um, during the 1920s. And so she's just, she has such, such rich material, not to mention she's a poet and a scholar and um, um, an Ivy League graduate and second only to Du Bois over at the crisis, and she deserves her due. And so it's, it's quite a privilege to 
be in in this project the, the kind of the beginning but still thick of it and sort of plug through the archives and figure out where she was at this given moment and and her relationship to places that she studied places like Bryn Mawr, places like um Cornell or the Sorbonne in Paris, right? And I'm excited about this project because she's featured in that middle world quite a bit, but there's still so much we just don't know about Jesse Fawcett. And I think we deserve to. And so I want to facilitate that re-encounter with her and her work. And hopefully this biography will will reposition her similarly to the way that Alice Walker, you know, repositions for us Zora Neale Hurston. And I hope to be able to give that jewel back to the Academy for, for someone so deserving as Jesse Redmond Fawcett. Uh, sounds like an amazing project. Can't wait to see how it develops. Thank you. I appreciate that.